Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Jim, welcome to the fight. How are you doing today, man? Doing great. Thanks, Don. So a quick history lesson here. I met you in person the first time at a painting contractor association meeting on the East Coast. I think it was in Rhode Island or Boston. I remember it because it was the first time I brought my son, Dakota, who was my video guy at the time. He's in the Marines now. I brought Dakota to film for content. And right when I walked up to the front of the room and I started welcoming everybody, you know, there's probably 50 contractors in the room. I looked in the back of the room and my son was looking in the camera bag and his eyes got really big, <laughs> like something was wrong. And I looked at him and I, I mouthed to him, you forgot the camera, didn't you? And he <laughs> nodded. He nodded. Yes. So he, that's, it's just funny. Cause I remember you spoke at the same thing there that day. And so that was the first time I met you and, and I've been following you since and, and all that. So that, that's the quick history lesson of how I know you. But for those that don't know you, tell us a little bit about you. What do you do? Who are you? All that good stuff. Sure. I'm just a, a contractor. I started from nothing, started as a painting contractor, evolved into industrial flooring, fireproofing, and I've been at it for 36 years. Um, so again, year one was 35,000 in revenue. And uh, this current year, we just wrapped up with 31 million. So a little bit of growth along the way. So it's amazing what you can accomplish after 36 years. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up that your, your first year being 35 grand. A lot of guys are discouraged because they don't feel it's moving fast enough. You know, what do you, what do you say to that guy who's in the trenches slugging away? Yeah, I've been that guy because I remember having those moments in my parents' kitchen and being frustrated that I could go work for someone else and making more money and, you know, slugging it out with dad and I because I started the business with my dad hmm. and it was frustrating. It's super frustrating. But for me, there was something inside of me that I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something much bigger and it didn't take away the frustration that I had along the way. So it's I guess it's just riding the journey out, believing in yourself, believing that you're here to accomplish something bigger. And sometimes when you stick to it, you know, big things happen. How long had it been and were you in business before you hit a million? That's a great question. I was going to hit you with that one. Uh, it took me 10 years to get it to a million. Yeah. Why? So, you know, not understand like all the things that I didn't know, I didn't know because I had too many blind spots, really looking back now, not knowing who the right customers were, not knowing who my right employees were. And for me and being able to grow the business in the early days, I hired all my friends, half of them didn't have a license and I had to go pick them up. And then all the people that I worked with, the only reason that they were hiring us is because we were cheap. And when I woke up one moment and I realized that I needed to raise my prices so that way I could afford better painters and that aspect of like, you know, increase your prices, get better painters, get better customers, and then just keep growing it like that. I keep talking about the, you know, going from the 1.0 to the 2.0 to the 3.0, but that was of employees and customers because it's, a, it's always trying to figure out the balance and you're never done, but you're always trying to figure that out. Yeah, because if I recall, you you went from one to ten million a lot faster. Right? It, it, it's interesting. It took me ten years to get it to ten million, but yes, sure, yeah. So you know, it was interesting yeah. because hiring my number two or hiring someone to be right there with me helped. And clearly, in the early days, it was my dad. You know, my dad and I started the business, and he was more of like, "Hey, let's get the work done." I was the hustler that got the work. And then when I hired my really strong number two, Bruce Jerky, he's the one that really helped us. In a sense, it was both of us fighting to be able to grow it and continue to grow it. So, mm -hmm. 
the, and so did you start doing like residential jobs? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, like, it was yeah. when we first started, it was repaints for the local paint store that would give us referrals to go do people's kitchens and bathrooms and, and, and paint things there. So th- those were the, our early days. I have, I have two kind of questions here. I'll, I'll just ask them at the same time. What was the, the, I hate this phrase, aha moment. Cause I, you know, I don't know why I don't like it, but whatever. What was the aha moment for you? Number one to go, we're going to go commercial. And then what was the aha moment or was there one event or a conversation or something you read or whatever that you woke up that day and you said, I got to raise my prices. So you might have to remind me of the second question, but the first question, my aha moment of going from residential to commercial or, you know, in the early days where we were doing the residentials and there was a lot of running around, a lot of hustling. And then I had some experience in commercial in a sense that I was like a 10 year old kid because my uncle, my father worked for my uncle and we got to see some of those projects. So for me, I, I knew that I needed to get to that next project, but who would hire me? So it was like chipping away to go try to find those mm-hmm. projects. So we went from residential maybe to like condominium repaint. So that was like a little bit of a bridge. And then, so we slowly started working for contractors and, and we had to get insurance if we worked for a contractor. So we slowly worked our way up. And my aha moment was when I got my first $50,000 job mm. and the difference between a 5,000 and a $50,000 job is just a zero. And the amount of administrative effort that they took were the same but the gross profit dollars, you know, even though the margins were a little bit less, the dollars were a lot bigger. So for there, I'm like, hold on a second. And, and that really is one of my aha moments of like, you can scale it, you can get it, but it's not always about chasing the top line because I see some great residential guys that are doing phenomenal gross profits, which really helps with the bottom line. Yeah, I have a mentor, former business partner. He just, cause he's retired. He's 65. He, um, he's in the water feature industry out in Baltimore area. And he did 1.5 to 1.7 a year, but his owner's salary was about 600 grand on that because his gross profit margins were so high. So I think a lot of people get what is the shiny lure of the, you know, having tons of trucks on the road and big revenue numbers and things like that doesn't always tell the full story. There's some hassles that go with that if you're not careful. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of ego out there and to go do those trophy jobs that gets your ego going. And then you look back and you don't make any money. So we've gone through those years as well. Yeah. I met a guy when I lived outside of Chicago, we were riding around one day, long story, how I know the guy, we were together and he pointed to this big cultural arts center. He goes, that was the biggest paint job I ever did, you know? And it was like well over a million dollar paint job. And I said, man, that, that's awesome. I was brand new in business. I said, man, that's awesome. He says, yeah, that's a job that put me out of business. And I went bankrupt. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it's, but yeah, it, it, the ego does get involved. So, well, the, what I wanted to dig into a little today was, uh, and this is what I see when I'm scrolling on LinkedIn. I see you there pretty much every day. You're highly visible there. And there, there seems to be a huge focus on, you know, I don't know what percentage of it is, but it, it seems like a quarter to a half of the things that I see from you, you're side by side with somebody on your team shooting a video or taking a picture or whatever it is. And you just have such a, it seems like you have such a focus on developing your people and lifting them up. And I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on, on what you're doing there and how it's helping the business and stuff. Yeah, it was early on for me when I realized that we were in the people business. Mm -hmm. And if I was to continue to grow the business, it was really about, we were in the people development business. And it took me a little bit to slowly understand that. But once I did, it's a matter of like, how do I continue to grow the quality and quantity of people around me? Mm -hmm. And that's probably what you're seeing in the videos is what we've realized is to be able to share the community that we have here or the culture that we have. And a lot of people talk about how culture is important, but how do you, how do you project it out into the public for people to know what it's like or to feel like, and, you know, people seeing smiling faces, people telling their own story of what it's like. You know, one of the posts that I had on LinkedIn was about one of the guys that graduated our field leadership program and just sharing what life was like for him 
before he started working for us and now graduating after our first field leadership program for him, you know, it was like night and day for him talking about the wild, wild west where, you know, guys were wrestling and fighting out in the field. And mm-hmm. here, you know, with us, he's actually getting a certificate and a promotion and, <clears throat> and taking on way more things. So it was, it's, it's different in our trade, right? The trades, you know, can be challenging and how do you give them something that's bigger and how do you let more people know? So I think we're using LinkedIn to be able to share that. How's that helped your business? Have you picked up employees, picked up projects? I'm just curious on that front. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just recently on our state of the company, I shared with everybody the three things that I got this past month. One was a guy from California that wanted to move east and liked what we were doing and said, hey, do you have a position for me? Because I'd like to move my family. And he was a great, he was, he was a superintendent. He was a pretty high up type of guy. And we regularly find people to hire from LinkedIn, which has been great. The other one was an executive on one of our customers and says, hey, I know we do work with you guys, but why aren't we doing more work? So it's like I mm. called up one of our people and said, hey, you know, go meet up with Sue and, you know, let's figure out how do we do more with them. And then the last one was, and I don't know if you know, I've done six acquisitions in the last eight years. And again, they're not huge acquisitions, but they're they're big to us and I'm learning how to do that. But a guy that said, hey, we work on with the same customers, we're on the same jobs, you know, unfortunately for him or for me was he was in an industry that I didn't want to get into. But those are the opportunities that show up for me on LinkedIn, just from putting it out there, what we're about, what we're doing and, you know, growing people and trying to do right by people. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of people talk about, you know, building their team. They need more employees and this and that. It sounds like acquisitions has helped you do that a little. Yeah, that was probably our biggest surprise when we started doing the acquisitions. And again, this wasn't a business plan thing that we wanted to start doing acquisitions. It was a matter of that opportunity knocked on our door and, you know, our employees, you know, referred us to people, our vendors referred us to people. But the biggest surprise is to, you know, you know, buy another company, merge with another company and them having, you know, employees that have been with them for 20 to 35 years. You can't you can't find these craft craftsmen anywhere. And for us to be able to buy a company and then get 12 of them, it's like, holy cow, you know, how does that happen? And we've been very fortunate to be able to, you know, meet them where they're at. You know, you know, their values were very similar to ours. So it it just worked out. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we started to learn even more the importance of the values and taking care of our employees. Gotcha. Earlier, you mentioned the challenge of sharing your culture with the outside world. I'm curious, how how do you define culture or what does it mean to you? It's really, it comes down to like how we treat each other and what does it look like when things aren't going right? And how do we treat each other just as much as when things are going great? How do we treat each other? And I attribute a lot of that because I started the business with my dad because of, you know, my parents' influence on me. It was like, you always have to do the right thing by people and then everything else figures it out. You know, it's it's important that we're making money, but it's not at the core. I get it. If, we, if we're not making money, it's how does everybody get paid? But really, it's like just treating people at a very human level. And it shows up and people are surprised because they've worked at other companies and they know what it's like and they know how cutthroat it can be. And they know how politics play in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't tolerate that stuff. We call people out on it. And we just it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the culture, it's like, it's not me doing, it's not the management team doing, it's people around an individual and say, hey, you know, dude, you, this isn't going to work out for you here. And because yeah. we don't deal with the drama very well, we won't put up with it. And, you know, we try to keep finding those people early and getting them off the bus and preserving what we have here as a as a great environment and a good place to work. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've struggled with, especially like 20 years ago, what year is it now? It's night. It's 2019. It's 2023. Yeah, yeah. I, so 23 and eight is what? 31? Is that 31? Yep. Yeah. Okay. See, I did some math there. There we it's go. Coming. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been out of the Marine Corps for 31 years. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, I came from an environment that's very fast paced, high expectations, high, high accountability. There was no conversation when you were given an order. You know, like go dig a hole over there and it needs to be this, you know, yes, like sir. It, you just did it. Right. And then when I got out, started my business, 
I had a guy named Tony. This is probably uh, my second biggest leadership fail um, back in the day. The first one's way worse, and I'm not going to share it here today. But anyway, Tony was staining these double hung windows in this 6,000 square foot, you know, tear down new construction project we were doing. And it was like a three-story house, and we're on the third story, and he had pulled the windows out and, you know, two double hung side by side, the big opening, and there's a three-story drop. And he was staining windows, and I was like, you should be doing it this way. And he argued with me, and I said, no, you need to do it this way. And he argued with me again, and then I said, Tony, if you don't do it the way I want it done, I'm going to throw you out the window. So obviously extreme example of like being firm and it's my way or the highway, which I'm not saying is the right way in any way, shape or form. But my point here is how do you personally balance, you know, being firm, you know, holding to the standard that we have here with creating a place where people feel safe to work there and, you know, they want to be there and it's a good culture. You know what I mean? I know a lot of guys in the trades grew up like my dad was a yeller. He just yelled at everybody on the job site, you know? And uh, how how do you personally balance the standard with, you know, the softer side of things? Mm, Interesting. I can be a yeller too. It's it's usually when you identify something that we might've made a mistake and we just don't want to repeat the mistake. So I'm cool with people making mistakes because that's really where you learn. But you know, when you get people making a second or a third, that's really where I have some issues. I I have this belief that people do want to do the right thing. I, I have the belief that they want to grow. So I approach it from that perspective and I've had some leaders that have worked with me in the past that have, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway. So it, it's, it's been interesting to see things convert because at the end of the day, you know, why are people doing what they do at work? It's because of what they have at home and Mm. just being respectful of that, thinking of it like my dad was employed by a bunch of people. And at one point, in a sense, even though my dad and I were partners when we got started, I was his employer. And, you know, you just treat people with respect and you hopefully can get them to see the light, but it doesn't always work. So I'm getting better at it. So it's a work in progress. Yeah, it's because when I got out of the Marines, I was a little high strung. In fact, little known fact, my son, who's in the Marines, he, he called me a couple months ago. He goes, Dad, did you know that if you want to get out of the Marines and make a lateral move to the Air Force, they make you wait two years so you calm down? <laughs> so I just thought that was, <laughs> that was interesting. But I love it. So and then I swung it to the other end where I would just give so much leash and I didn't want to be overbearing you know, and I've always personally struggled finding that sweet spot, you know, in the middle. That's just kind of my. Yeah, I, I still struggle with that, too. Mm-hmm. So it's still there. You know, you, you, you swing one way then to the other. So, yeah. Earlier, I know we're talk, talking about people and stuff here as well. Taking a couple notes here. I'd love to have your thoughts on a couple things here. So first is I want to start with recruiting. If you could remove yourself from the $31 million business you have now, go back to when you were, or say you were immediately back at a half a million a year and you needed to build your team. What, what are some things that you might, some strategies or approaches you might take to recruiting today? Hmm. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's humbling to think back to the half a million because things were not as easy I would say like some of the skills or tools that hopefully you would let me bring back with me is understanding what is motivating someone, right? So one, you get to kiss a lot of frogs and I would establish a system of uh, like every Wednesday, every Friday, every whatever that might be is establish a system of always be looking for people. So that way I'm always kissing frogs. I remember doing a paint test and and I don't know who else is doing a paint test out there, but one of the things that we've done early on, maybe, yeah, I would say back at that, you know, somewhere between the half a million and the million mark. I know by a million, we were already doing it, but we would have painters come in and paint a wall and we would time them and we would have a conversation around them. And that wall was a hundred square feet. So we could actually track their production. And it wasn't really to see how fast that they could paint, but you could actually 
you know, have a conversation with them about production rates, tell them what hundred square feet looked like. So I, I guess as far as recruiting, always be recruiting. Cause for me, I think recruiting is like marketing is like sales. If you're not always doing it, then you're going to find a dead spot in your schedule. You're going to have a dead spot in manpower. So you always should be doing it. So nonstop recruiting. Yeah. It's like you never want to get a line of credit when apply for a line of credit when you need the money. Bingo. <laughs> and so you never want to hire when you need the people. Sure. So, I mean, you understand what I mean by that? Like when you're always recruiting, you're always kind of filling that pipeline of and building your bench and bringing on the right people that are a good fit instead of having to settle for the scraps that are, that are out there. Right. You know, and the then you're going to go from, you know, finding one out of every four people might work out for you rather than in, during the busy summer months, you might need to interview 10 to 12 to 15 people before you find one that will, you know, work for you. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we've done those paint tests and interviews and we found people that couldn't really paint but what we realized there was something about them that we could work with. And so that's why I say it doesn't really matter how fast they do it, but it gives you something of a standardized interview that you can actually have a conversation with someone. You can watch someone work with the tools. We've even taken it to the point that we'll give them a specific instruction. Like you were telling that guy how to paint the sashes. We'll give them a specific instruction. Can they take what we gave them for instructions and actually put it into action. So that's the other thing that we can do while we're giving them that paint test interview. Hey, which of your clients would you like to clone? How much profit would that mean in your business? Imagine if you can clone Mike, who's your best client ever, okay? And you could clone him 10, 15, 20 times over and over and over. What would that mean to your business? Well, listen, I want to invite you to join me and my buddy Mike Michalowicz in Florida as for Strong Leader Live as we bring to you a, a day of clarity and focus, helping you get set on the right things in your business so that you can absolutely repeat those ideal clients. You can attract more of those ideal clients coming into your business every day, an endless stream of them. You're going to walk out of there with all the tools you need to implement, and then it's on you to pull the trigger and make that stuff happen. Listen, Mike has also promised in the course of this workshop with hot seats and a bunch of other cool stuff, you are going to walk away with at least a million dollars worth of ideas that you can implement in your business. Let's go. Yeah, so your culture, you talked about how we treat each other here. How do you know in the recruiting and hiring process if they're going to fit? You don't. And I think it's part of, you know, looking them in the eyes, shaking their hands, having a conversation with them. I typically like to learn a little bit more about them. And, you know, I used to do all the recruiting and now I've had to take that, put it into a process and pass it off to someone else. And they don't let me do that anymore. But it's really engaging with them of who they are. Why are they doing it? Where have they come from? You know, why do you need the money? What are you going to do with the money? So any silly questions to connect with them, to really get to understand them, to get a feel of it. And most people that are here understand the importance of the culture that we have here. And they look for it as well because they know when someone's like, well, what do you mean you're not going to listen to me? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you said they don't let me do that anymore. I I have a similar thing here in the contractor fight. We're we're to a point now where I'm not allowed to make any hiring decisions. They only have me spend time with somebody when they want to hire them and I just get a feel for them now. Yep. And because I I like everybody. I can find a reason. It, yeah. For those who can't see Jim's going, yeah, me too. Right. So it's, <laughs> it's a, I can find something about everyone to convince myself that they're going to be a fit here. And so I, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, I have been removed from the hiring process because of that reason. Cause I, I screw it up, you know, and sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm not, but what percentage of people that, that you onboard end up sticking Hmm. I, I don't know if I have a pulse on that number. I'd be making a guess. The field is probably a little bit more turnover 
because there's a tendency to people and the younger side and they're early in their career and they're still not sure. I know the, the thing that we realize is when we get internal referrals and we have a referral program to pay people to, to give us leads and then we decide to hire them, those last way longer. And yeah. it's interesting to see anywhere from like the management team, even all the way down to the field, we've seen people refer other people and then you can start, you see them em embrace their career track and actually do amazing things. All right. So you just said the magic words, career track. I felt that one of the reasons that people are not going into the trades is because they look at the trades as this is what I heard. I'm 53. I heard growing up, you should learn a trade because it's a good fallback. It's always good to have a skill, right? But it was never plan A. And, and I, my experience working with contractors and doing it myself was you got to have some sort of path that shows people what's in it for them, right? Like what, why will my life, how will my life, my financial goals, my dreams, you know, to buy a house or do whatever it is and have a career, how, how, will, how will my life be better as a result of working for you? What's been your biggest struggle with the career path thing early on? I mean, you're, you're humming along now. You yeah, know, no, it's so much easier now. Yeah. And I can give you examples how we show people their career path and that yeah. stuff. You know, I realized that I had that responsibility and that's probably where a lot of my passion for growth came from mm -hmm. was that if I didn't continue to grow the business, then the people, the really good people, like, like way back when I only had one or two, but first of all, I needed to be able to attract really good people. So I needed to paint a picture of growth and remember, sales and recruiting is the same thing, right? Whether you're selling projects or whether you're selling to try to get someone to want to come work for you, that's really what you're doing is you're trying to get them excited about coming to work for you and thinking about a bigger, better future. And I remember having the conversations of like, what's important, you know, and in the early days, it's like, well, I want health insurance and, or I want days off or vacations and that type of stuff. And though some of those things, it's like, how did I, raise my prices so that way I could afford to give some of these employees these things that they were asking for so then I could get the better employees and then go after an even better customer. Mm -hmm. And again, that was the 2.0, 3.0 is like, keep, keep getting better employees. Well, how am I going to afford better employees? Well, I have to get better customers that are willing to pay a higher price per hour so I can go get better employees. And I just kept trying to reinvent myself that way. Yeah, it's like every step of growth, you've got to become someone different, you know, as the Absolutely. leader. And, um, Absolutely. and, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I want to scale my business, but they're not working on themselves. That's going to be a problem. Well, you just hit on what I wanted to, to mention is like there's you can't grow your business unless you're willing to grow yourself. You mm -hmm. can't grow any aspect of your business unless you're willing to work on yourself. And I think that's really sometimes as a leader, as a business owner, I've hit the ceiling of complexity and have gotten frustrated and I can go blame the outside forces or I can go blame my employees or my customers. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the, what's the term extreme ownership, mm -hmm. right? It, it, if I own it, I own it. And what am I going to do to get better? So that way I can run a better business. So more people would want to work here for more customers. It's just, it's one of those things that it just keeps feeding into it. What are you working on now and on yourself? Hmm. They keep taking more and more things away from me. I think learning to how to lead other leaders for me and how to get stuff done through others has been a challenge because I know the business inside and out. And when I walk into a, a room or I walk into a warehouse or I meet someone, I can see and smell the problem. But now my job is to help grow my leaders and to have them see it. So in a sense, what I'm always trying to do is bring someone with me no matter what I'm doing. So yeah. that way they can start to see what I see. So transferring that knowledge and being able to, you know, teach people in, in every turn I make. Yeah. I was a leadership conference probably 15, at least 15 years ago where the guy said, if you want to raise up other leaders, your number one job is to teach them how to think. 
And that always stuck with me. And meaning in the shift for me is I, and I accidentally did this one day, coincidentally, the same guy was Tony. I was telling you about he, Tony was one of those guys on the crew that would call you for any little decision. And the guy had like 15, 20 years experience. He knew what he was doing, but he just wanted that approval, right? Like, Hey, Hey boss, I ran into this. What, what should I do? What should I do? And he had called me like two or three times in this one day. And the next time he called, I picked the phone up and I go, what do you need? And he's like, he asked for it. And I said, dude, let me ask you a question. If you were doing your own side job this weekend and had this problem, what would you do? And he goes, well, I would do this, this, and this. I said, sounds great. Do that. And I hung up. And, um, and that was kind of the switch for Tony where I got him to think. And so when we would promote somebody maybe to a crew leader, instead of just, you know, we'd go, here's the scope of work and telling them how to do it. When I did it right, I didn't always do it right, but when I did it right, I would go, Hey, put eyes on this for the next 15, 20 minutes. You know, I'll, I'll be back in here. Tell me what your approach is going to be to the project. You know, just anything you could do to get people to think. And I think that's what's getting my attention on on LinkedIn with you is it just seems like you're always, like I said it earlier, always with somebody. So you're definitely living that out, man. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, you just sparked something. I remember one of my facilitators or coach, uh, because in a sense, what you were saying with Tony, that's happened with me. And and me as the leader is the one that's really getting in the way of them developing because I'm the one who taught Tony to pick up the phone and call me, mm-hmm. right? I, yeah, I'm the one exactly. that created that habit because I'm a control freak. I want to know what's going on and I can't let go of it. And I get called out on a regular basis and I have to figure that out. And I remember that that coach or facilitator gave me one of those signs for my desk. And what it said on it is, I don't know, what do you think? And it was just there as a prompt and as a reminder when that phone went off to look down at that sign and say, I don't know. What do you think? I love that. Yeah, we got to a point where we we gave them the freedom if it was ethical, if it was safe, and it was going to enhance the experience for the client, they had the green light. Like that just was kind of, you know, the the baseline of it. And, and if it's outside and, or, and then the next step of this whole thing where teaching them to think is when we actually had gotten to a point where when Tony would call me, he would say, Hey man, listen, sorry to bother you. Here's the issue. I've tried this. I had this conversation with the customer. I'm at a dead end here. Like, cause we trained them to go before you call us or when they would call us, we would say, Hey, well, what have you tried? Right. And again, it puts it back on them. And, and that that's a tough thing to do because like you said, you could walk in and you could s- sniff out the solution in five seconds because you, you have the reps you've done it for so many years. So yep. second, second part of the people thing, we talked recruiting. I want to talk a little bit about developing. We talked, you know, about having a career path and stuff. I guess the, the one thing there's a lot of people, you know, running a business, you know, million, a year or whatever it is where they know they need to have some sort of training plan development plan. And they look at it as like a two part thing. Number one, like it's expensive, you know, they go, Oh my God, all these dead man hours that I'm paying for to put people through training, which I know, I know there's the investment side of it and you're playing the long game, but that short term, like maybe the cash isn't there right now. You know, what do you do when you're in, when you're in that spot, but you, you're, you're all in on wanting to train your guys or your team, but maybe you haven't raised your prices where you need to yet. Maybe, you know, you're still playing, you raise your prices, but there's the, the consequences of having low prices there you're still dealing with. Yeah, that's, that's the challenge of like, mm-hmm. you know, what do you fix first? And I, I, I believe that there is training that we can do internally that doesn't cost us anything and that, you know, it beefs up morale. You're telling someone you care, but once you can get to the point that you can actually invest outside to bring in someone else to go be part of a coaching program, Mm -hmm. I think that's really where it's at. Um, You know, figuring out, but it always comes back to the leader. It always comes back to the owner to make sure that they're reinventing themselves because otherwise 
they're 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 trying to make a turkey sandwich with bologna. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So how do you figure that out? Like, and and it's it's always which came first, chicken or the egg? And yeah. you're going to go through some iterations of that. A business owner, I know I have, and there's going to be frustrating moments. I've I've gone through many of those, but you just have to do it, right? Is it is it pigheaded determination that got me through it to go look for that? Because I've gone through multiple coaches multiple coaching programs, peer groups. And, and this is going way back when, and one of the earlier things that I got out of learning from like others or coaching was really my confidence. Like, and once your confidence goes up a little bit more, that's really, you just, it snowballs, it keeps building and you, and you start to fix all the things. And sometimes it's as easy as going to you know, a, a painting contractors association meeting and, mm-hmm. and you can see what everybody else is dealing with. As long as you avoid the people that are just pounding their chest, because next month when they're having a, a, a tough month, they're not going to be at the meeting. So you can just avoid them that way. But look, we're all on that roller coaster journey mm-hmm. and we're going to go through our good times and our bad times. But it's really about, you know, like you would say, you know, stay in the fight and, and mm-hmm. keep fighting. What's one of those things you could do that isn't going to cost money? to train, like what comes to mind with that, just to help maybe help somebody I think having listening. conversations with your people, I think engaging with your people at the human level of, hey, how are you? Like for me, it's like knowing someone's name and shaking their hand. And we're up to like 175 employees now. So it's, it's a challenge for me to know everybody's name, but just to connect with people at that level, for people to know that you care, people will do more for you at that point, right? Yeah. Or at least the right people, the ones that won't, they might not be the right employees for you, but just connecting at that level, asking people their goal, like why why are they doing what they're doing? Why do they come into work every day? What's going on at home? You know, what are your goals at home? Because everybody has something like that. The only reason we do what we do at work is because of what we have at home. Yeah, I said I wasn't going to share this, my biggest leadership fail, but I'll, I'll share it now because this kind of fits. We had an employee, we'll name him Tom here for the example. This is probably... 15 years ago, he, he had, he had a baby that was born. The baby never left the hospital for its whole first year of life. And right around, he was either on or right around its one year birthday. The baby died. His, his kid died. <laughs> this is, everyone's going to hear this and be like, you're a shitty leader. But I did tell this at our event last year in front of hundreds of people. So I suppose I could tell here. I didn't know it. I didn't know that his kid was in the hospital for a year. His performance never took a hit. I came to find out later, the guys on the crew, if they had a doctor's appointment or something, he would just, the crew leader would clock him out, tell him to go take care of it. And if he could make it back today, great. So he wasn't like cheating our system or anything like that. But the other guys on his crew were covering for him. And for a whole year, I didn't even know his baby was sick and in the hospital until it came out that his baby had passed away. And then obviously we went to the funeral and did what we could to support at that point. But I, uh, I look at that going, I failed, I failed that guy. I failed Tom, you know, and I failed his family. And I look at all the things that we could have done to support him in that time and to really build that, you know, we all say we're like a family around here, but in that case, we were nothing like a family. We were a total dysfunctional family, if anything. And so that resonates with me when you talk about, you know, when you show that you give a crap about people um, and it's not just about banging the job out and doing the work and, you know, you got to push those. If you have financial pressures or recruiting pressures or sales issues, you have to push all that aside. And remember, you know, this is truly another human being that has their own shit going on in their life, just like you do, you know, and, you know, one of my partners, he always talks about, treat people with the platinum rule, which is treat people the way they want to be treated. Right. And, uh, and, and that was a huge fail of mine. And anybody listening to this, I, you know, take that to heart, you know, take that time to have a conversation with people in your company that have nothing to do with work. And, uh, you know, or another question, one of my mentors has said to me is uh, same platinum rule guy, he'll pull his team together from time to time and he'll open it up and he'll just go, Hey, how have I failed you recently? That's his, that's, and he gets a ton of engagement. He usually has his right-hand guy who unleashes on him really hard to kind of set the tone for everybody, you know, cause they have a history together and they feel safe, but it's just that gives everybody on the team, you know, 
I mean, I think as humans, we all want to be heard. We all want to be understood at the most basic level. And, and we have a lot of power as a leader in our organizations to influence a lot of people, not just our employees, but their families and so on. Yeah, I think you're you're being a little tough on yourself because if you think about it, you created an environment and you hired people around you mm-hmm. that actually supported this guy as he was going through it. So even though you may not have known what was going on, and I, I hear you, you want to be hard on yourself, but you also surrounded yourself with some team leaders that looked out for this guy and that cared for this guy of what he had going on so he can go to the hospital and be there for his family in, yeah. in whatever way he could. So, you know, you you may not have known about it, but in a way you were still there for him. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Like it's, it's not, I don't, it doesn't keep me up at night anymore. It did for a few weeks, you know, like, Oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know this, but it, you know, it's one of those lessons that's made me a better leader, quite frankly. And Absolutely. and even recently I could look back in the last year of our employees here in the contractor fight. And I can see not to that degree, but I could see that I've also, I've repeated the mistake again. You know, I just haven't been on my A game with it. And I think that's, just part of the importance of being self-aware and having conversations like this. You talked about peer groups and, you know, going to these coaching things and stuff, you know, so much of who we become is the result of who we hang out with, you know, and what we're exposed to. And that's, that's why this stuff's important. I was going to flip the question on you. And I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you questions, you ask me but, anything you want, you know, you're, you're, you're helping a lot of people out there. What are the challenges that people are dealing with right now? What are the business owners really dealing with out, out there? Yeah, well, on the business front, you know, this time of year, depending on where you live, can be really tough because of seasonality. And what they've built as far as a lead gen process is is kind of the tide has gone out and they're naked now, <laughs> right? And, you know, so lead flow is huge. I think a lot of people are struggling with self-confidence, you know, that you alluded to earlier, that, you know, they they don't have the confidence to raise their prices. They don't have the confidence to make their first hire even, you know, like they're terrified. You know, we've got people in our, in our coaching community who, you know, are going through breast cancer and, and, you know, a kid died tragically. And, you know, so I think there's just a lot of, there's, there's so many needs because it's not, they're people. It doesn't matter what your trade or your profession is, right? We all have these things happen, but you know, the, the business owners that we're talking to the most, it's figuring out which, which, what's the first domino I need to knock over right now in my business that gets me momentum. I think that's a really big commonality. In fact, to the point where in the spring here in April, end of April, we're having a, a, a more intimate event, meaning like around 100 people. And we're bringing in, do you know who Mike Michalowicz is? I do not. So he's an author and a speaker, big entrepreneur guy. And he has a book, the book Profit First. He wrote that and stuff like that. So he's been on the show a couple of times and and we hired him to come in and do a workshop that's kind of rooted in his, I think it's his latest book called Fix This Next. (laughs) So it's that exact. Love it. That exact thing. So I think a lot of people are just paralyzed. They don't know what to do right now. You know? And I, I have read his book and yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's spot on. And that's, that's great of you to do that for the community because like, it's spot on. It's like, fix this next. It just yeah. keep an eye on what's the most important thing to fix, to be able to get prior priorities in line or profitability or whatever you have to do. What What are you seeing? What needs are you seeing? Hmm. You know, and, and I, you know, like everybody else, we're dealing with some level of seasonality and I would say this year, probably was the first year that we probably were surprised by not being able to put everybody to work. And and one of the things that we pride ourselves on is keeping people busy year round. But, you know, this January, even, you know, trickling into February was and still is a little bit of a challenge to keep everybody busy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's uh, that bothers me. You know, it's one of those things that we pride ourselves to make sure that we're looking out. And if we can't provide the work, you know, I, I feel as if we're failing our people. So that's that's a challenge. How does it affect us? You know, yeah, we'll, you know, maybe we'll have a couple unprofitable months, but it's not going to be a game changer for us. But there are people that it is a game changer for. And, I, mm-hmm. and for me to make sure that everybody in the organization gets that, that it's just, yeah, you know, just lay them off. It's not that simple. And people sometimes don't realize how tough it can be at home. And, and it's our responsibility to be aware of that and to make sure we're, we look out for them. So uh, number one, I'm, I'm, 
glad that you shared that because there's a lot of people listening that go, oh, he's got a $31 million company. He doesn't have the same problems I have, right? It's just you, you have 175 people to employ, you know, and somebody might have eight, you know, but it's still the same problem. So I appreciate you sharing that. What's your message to the company in a time like that? Do whatever it takes. And like, we're really having the meetings once a week and then it's trickling down to the ops managers. It's trickling down all the way out to the field. And now even the field guys that are working are looking for places. We're all calling our customers and asking them, hey, do you have anything that we could throw a couple of guys to do some maintenance painting for you? Mm -hmm. And everybody's doing their part to be able to keep a couple guys busy, a couple people busy, because that will make a difference for someone at home. And, you know, it was supposed to be 24 people and we got on the horn. And the next thing you know, we kept 12 more people busy this week. So it's mm -hmm. really about staying in action, you know, instead of like panicking or freezing, like just stay in action, go do what you can today to be able to help one more person. And, and that's really the message that I give everybody is what could you do? What difference could you make? And that's really how we're driving it. Who the hell wouldn't want to work for you? <laughs> I'm just sitting here going, man, what a great example, man. You know, like, you, you know, we, none of us are perfect. I know you're not perfect. We all have our shit, but you know, it's like, you know, this goes back to just showing that you care. Like you're not yeah. just sitting back, laying people off going, okay, it is what it is. I'll call you back when it picks up again. Right. You're yep. you and your, your, your team are taking action and, and uh, hey, if they're sitting at home, it's not going to be because you guys didn't bust your ass trying to make something happen. So, yep. so two last questions and they're really easy ones. The first is what, what else, or what, what should I have asked you that I didn't, or what else is on your mind that you, you want to share? And the second is where do people find you? You know, if somebody sure. wants to look into working for you, or they think that they have a business you might want to acquire or something like that. You know, how can yeah, you reach finding us, me so. on LinkedIn would probably be the easiest and, and the best, you know, where our offices are just outside the Boston area, but we work throughout the six New England states. So just look me up on LinkedIn. And I think the hardest part will be, you know, trying to spell Colutus, but somewhere in your notes, you'll, you'll have the spelling yeah, we'll in my last, in the show notes. What's my your last website? name. What's that? What's your website? Colutus.com, K-A-L-O-U-T-A-S. So it's, you know, you can find us there, but LinkedIn is always easier because you can search it from a couple different ways. What did you not ask me? I guess what's next? What age, what age will I retire? I, I guess, you know, a lot of people, you know, I'm 55. I've been at this since I was 19. And for me, retirement is not in the cards. I'm pretty passionate about what I'm doing here. And it's really about creating this, this organization, this environment. And one of the things that I'm doing a lot of research and a lot of understanding on is the whole ESOP thing and being able to sell the business to the employees. I think that's mm -hmm. something for me, the right thing to do in the bigger picture. And then it ties into why more people would want to come be a part of it is to go help even more people out. And, yeah. you know, that's that's probably the biggest thing that I've been working on and trying to educate myself on. So basically, you've created a business and a life you don't need to retire from. 100%. You do the right? things you love. You never work mm -hmm. a day in your life. Yeah. It's uh, we I'm 53 and my wife and I've had this conversation and I just said, you know, I don't know if I ever will retire because I love what I do. I love having an impact. It's it's beyond money now, right? Like it's just that 100%. You know, I can't imagine waking up tomorrow and not having something to do that impacts people. Right. And so now I'd probably go coach high school football again and stuff like that. And I'd fill the time, but yeah, I think you guys listening to this, you do this, right. You play the long game. Those of you that are discouraged, you know, you're like, Oh, I've been stuck at three or 400 grand a year. And I've been in business five years, you know, you'll get there, right. Keep going. You know, you gotta, you gotta stay in the game long enough to win. One of my old business partners said that to me many years ago, like you get, you gotta stay in long enough. You just can't tap out. And uh, speaking of, all right, I lied. One more question. How would you evaluate yourself? Not you personally, but like a business owner. How do you know it might be time to tap out that you may not be cut out for this? You might be better off getting a job and having less stress and stuff like that. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Really, it comes down to like trying to understand what your passion is. And I was in the painting business behaving like a contractor. And, you know, I, I was wrestling with that, like, you know, should I tap out? Should I go as? So I think it's a very touchy 
subject or question that something what keeps us in this is that pig-headed determination. But really it comes down to like, if you see the stress level go up to the point that it's unhealthy, mm-hmm. uh, you should definitely go get help. And then if that doesn't help, I, I would say that if it's affecting your health, it's affecting your relationship, I, I would ask that. But then now I'm thinking back to how many like relationships I got, I burnt out of because of, and you know, and we're talking in my twenties and my thirties, right? I didn't get married till my late thirties. Yeah. So I guess there's, there are signs along the way, but it's a matter of like, do you want to listen to them? And, and for me, it's about passion. Are you having fun? And I could always find the fun in what I did. And I could always find the fun in helping people. And that's really at my core. And I was fortunate enough to be able to discover it, but it does take work. You're not going to find it overnight. So I don't know if I gave you an answer there, but. No, because it's complex. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's a conversation with your spouse, right? Like, just like, Hey, is this, is the juice going to be worth the squeeze on the other end of this? You know? And, you know, like you said, if, if just the stress is too much and you're unhealthy and blah, blah, blah. So cool. Well, Jim, I appreciate you hanging here today, carving out some time to do this here on a Wednesday afternoon. Super appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you keep kicking some butt and, you know, building, building your empire and making people's lives better and all that stuff. Guys, head to kalutas.com, K-A-L-O-U-T-A-S. See, it's on my screen, so I was able to get it right the first time. And uh, appreciate you being part of the fight, man. Uh, thank you for having me and keep doing what you're doing. And I know you're making a difference and I wish there were more people like you when I got started, when I was two, three, 400,000, because it's not easy and it's lonely trying to grow the business. So it's a great thing that you're doing for the community. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. All right, guys, give us a rating, give us a review, share this with somebody who needs it. And with that, I am out. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org. 